it's the Totally Topical Football Show. We're on the road to Russia, listeners, but we're making a few detours today to take in such exciting topics as Napoli. Are they actually that great? Is the writing on the wall for the Netherlands, unlike, say, the Tory party? And what's going to happen this weekend in all those exciting World Cup qualifiers? My word, add in some of your special questions, listeners, and it all adds up to a very exciting edition of the Totally Football Show. All aboard Totally Football Show as we sail off into a special rest weekend for leagues uh, all across the world. Rarely have I looked forward to a weekend of international football. That's it. Uh, (laughs) But but I I know I'm in the minority about this because, Michael Cox, you're all reared up for all these qualifying things. Yeah, there's some good matches. Bingo. Yeah, Okay. Uh, James Horncastle. Yeah, there's a lot at stake, Jimbo. Messi and Ronaldo might not be at the World Cup. It is true. Matt Scott. Matt. Oh, yeah. I I mean, I I bump into you all the time Mm. in our big football punditry house. Yeah. But we haven't had, you know, we haven't sat across a podcasting table, you know, in frankly years. Almost a decade, isn't it? Probably so. Yeah. You know, you've been off digging. I mean, you were the digger. Mm. Um, yeah, but people who listen to this are a generation <laughs> younger than us, so they won't yeah. remember this. But um, but yeah, but you're all about the. I'm not going to say the business, but you know, kind of, you're the story behind the story. That's what you do. What, what are you working on at the moment? What are you about? What big scoop have you got well, to uncover? Yeah, well, I mean, there's not really a lot to scoop, but uh, I mean, there's a there's a tremendous story going on at the moment about the uh, the potential. The risk of, of schism between the top six and uh, and the others. That's amazing, isn't it? Because essentially then the big six just want to bring the international rights into line with how they divide up the domestic a rights. A third of it, yeah, only a third of it. Um, there was a fantastic um, research piece by Stefan Szymanski, who's a, who's a football-facing academic and an economist. And he looked at the uh, revenues and the audience figures for teams that have a dominant player or one or two dominant players in that league. And it is far greater to have one or two that people can latch onto and really actually enjoy, rather than to have it spread in, in amongst 20, 20 individual clubs. He was he he has contended, and he's backed this up with with lots in of terms of kind of marketing so. the league. In terms of how people actually feel affection and and viewing figures and attendances of games, but but you know, it was I've read it all and it is so a very compelling study. Essentially, the Liga model of having a couple of couple of super clubs is better than having the the spread of the Premier League. Well, yeah, the Liga, the the Bundesliga, you know, these leagues are are more successful in terms of what they can do for the littler clubs. It is better off for them in terms of viewing figures and and potential to to raise commercial income. He says. Uh, than it is to have everybody competing and, and nobody having a narrative to latch onto. So ultimately, the risk might be mm. that with all of this competition, and if there are too many Leicesters winning leagues, yeah. that it will be to the detriment of the Premier League. Very interesting. We'll, we'll maybe pick up on all of that later on, but um, that all makes international football sound all the more attractive. <laughs> um, Matt, it's it's a funny time, isn't it? You get you know we've all talked about the the business of international football coming along when you're. You got that momentum going with club football. It's a little bit like being stuck behind a garbage truck. God bless them when they keep stopping every kind of intervals down the road. Or no is that just doubles. me? Do you guys get excited? I don't know if it's an English thing um, where we just take qualification for granted. Uh, we see England play against the same old teams every year and qualify quite easily. I think for other nations it is quite interesting. There is some drama to it. Um, I think there are a couple of groups 
at the moment where there are maybe three, maybe in four teams who could still automatically qualify, right. let alone going to the playoffs. So well, You mentioned the fact that Ronaldo and Messi might not be going to the World Cup. 4-4-2 pointing out that Germany, indeed, could be the only uh, reigning champion of a major international tournament that, that actually make it to Russia. Cameroon, who are the African champions already out. USA, who are the Gold Cup winners. Chile, who won the Copper America. And Portugal, all currently outside automatic qualifying spots. New Zealand and Australia have to go through an inter-confederation playoff before they can hope to make it to Russia. The teams through, as you probably know, are the host nation Russia, Brazil, Iran, Japan, South Korea, Saudi Arabia, Belgium and Mexico, so the big guns already in place. England, more or less sorted. They have a game against Slovenia. Joe Hart still the keeper. Oxlade-Chamberlain still in the squad. Joe Sherd says, Michael, England have Rashford, Delhi, although obviously not on this occasion, and Sterling, but they lack a Mkhitaryan Eriksson silver type. Does he exist anywhere in the English game? Yes, he does. Adam Lallana, I think, has been England's best player since he became established in the team a couple of years ago. Obviously, he's out injured at the moment, but I think he's the perfect player that England needs. And I'm quite hopeful that England will kind of replicate the Spurs system and play a front three. So they'll have Kane up front, Ali, a kind of inside left position, and then you'll have Lallana playing the, the Christian Eriksen role, which uh, seems to make sense to me. Interesting. Um, Mars Lambert says, is Harry Winks' England squad inclusion a sign of the strength of talent coming through or a sign of the weakness thereof? Well, it's hard to argue against the strength of the talent underneath the senior England team, given their success this summer in all of the tournaments that they took part in, uh, semi-finals of the under-21s being the worst of it. Um, I think that's a, a, a resounding endorsement of, of the quality of, of our youth development here and uh, I think Harry Winks, Winks is a very good player who has every good every reason to, to have a very strong international for, future ahead of him. Yeah, Harry Winks has only started uh, four Premier League games and a lot of people are surprised that he can get into the England squad on the back of that but you look over the last few years, Deli Ali, Adam Lallana and Raheem Sterling have all been called up for the first time having started four or fewer Premier League games and are now amongst the most important players in the England team. So actually we've been quite good at bringing these players through at a very early stage, you know, getting them comfortable in that kind of environment and, um, you know, hopefully we can continue to do that because, um, as Matt says, you know, the strength in the under-21s and the under nineteen seems to be uh, very good. Uh, England are playing Slovenia this very evening, Thursday. Excitingly, Northern Ireland, Wales and Scotland all have a chance to finish second and possibly pick up a playoff spot in their respective groups. Northern Ireland miles clear of third. They're hosting Germany Thursday evening. Scotland need to defeat both Slovakia and Slovenia and they'll be guaranteed second. Slovakia, they did lose 3-0 against a year ago, though. But I argue that maybe our attention here should be focused very much on Wales and Ireland, only one of which, because they're in the same group, can hope to secure a second spot. And, oh, my word, they face each other in Wales on Monday. And Would I be right in thinking that there's going to be a bit of bad blood here after that mm. very tumultuous nil-nil with mm. Seamus Coleman getting his leg done last time they met? Yeah, quite possibly. And also Wales without Gareth Bale, um, which is obviously a huge And blood. with Ashley Williams fit. <laughs> <laughs> he plays well for Wales. Does he? Yeah, no, it's a, it's a he, cheap he, shot. Yeah, it was. Sorry it about was. that. And they've got L- Woodburn now. Yeah, yeah, and Ben Woodburn, who was the hero of the, the, the matches, which have mm. launched them back into contention. Well, Luke Parfit saying, "What do you think about the idea that Wales is a one-man team?" Go on, James. Well, I think um, we saw that there were more than that at the Euros. No, yeah, I think even with even with Bale um, and the impact that he had, um, there was a, a togetherness, a unity in that team that makes it like a club side. I think um, to some extent. So. Um, 
yeah, I would dispute the idea that uh, they're a one-man team, and you know they're going to have to get used to playing without Bale. Well, well, not as much as they would like, because as we've seen with Real Madrid, I think Bale misses one. He only plays one in every three games for them. Um, mm. Yeah, his injury record is is really poor, and um, yeah, with him with him breaking down over and over again, I think yeah, it's they have to find a, a another route to 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 major tournaments and to, to win games just in, in general. So. You can make anything of numbers, but here's a stat for you. Yeah. Wales haven't actually won without Gareth Bale in the side since 2013. Oh. Gosh. I, uh. I tend to disagree with James, actually. I, I just think they've so structured the team around Bale. They've given him a central role, essentially let him, let him go where he wants. They've got Aaron Ramsey, who breaks forward from midfield, but I think that real kind of moments of individual magic in the final third, I think they're, they're lacking without him. Wales, a 60-year wait for a World Cup. Even if they get second, it may not be enough because I think they're currently sitting bottom of the runners-up rankings. So they might be the side that misses out. Who, who's your money on in, in this clash? Because they're facing an Ireland team that that isn't looking in the best of, of form either, Michael. Uh, I'm not sure there'll be many goals. I might no. go for a nil-nil. Mm. I think there could be a sending off because there are so <laughs> many of them. And Ireland are appalling against teams with 10 men. I mean, they, they, they had that 10 men that you talked about when Neil Taylor was sent off. Uh, in breaking uh, Seamus Coleman's leg. Uh, they had 20 minutes of it against Serbia in the last one that they, they played and they're just not scoring goals when that mm. happened. So, uh, Shane Long. Would it be Shane Long playing up front for them? Probably. Um, he hasn't scored for Club of Country since February. No, he's not getting a lot of chances, is he? I, which is a shame for him because he's a player I like a lot. I think he is a, a real difficult player to play against. If you're a defender, you never know where he is. He puts in a hell of a shift. And that's what Ireland are all about. So um, he, he would very much set the tone from the front. It's not easy for them, though, going away from home uh, at Wales. You know, you would have to have Wales as favourites, even though Gareth Bale isn't there. So maybe that first win for four years. And equally, before they actually face each other, Ireland have Moldova at home, whereas Wales have to go to Georgia, which mm. could, could prove tricky. Because not helping the situation vis-a-vis Ireland scoring goals uh, was Kevin Doyle's retirement and this mm. this brings us on to a whole new topic really leaving the game on medical grounds due to headaches brought on by heading footballs um What's this called? Cranial trauma CTE, en- yeah. encephalopathy? Mm. Yeah, CTE, a degenerative condition say. brought on by repeated mild brain trauma from basically heading mm. footballs. This is not a new topic but it's not one that's seen much movement on before and I'm curious as to whether the fact that Kevin Doyle was playing in the States for the Colorado Rapids might have been, because there's so much awareness there because of American football of the kind of concussion issues and the, the damage to brains from repeated impacts, whether that was why doctors have been slightly more aware of it there. Yeah, I think uh, one of the breakthroughs on this, which I think is seen as a big threat to American football, is that um, the university in Boston, which has been, I think, pioneering the research into CTE, are not far away from being able to diagnose this in kind of real time um, I think they've only been able to do it by studying um, the brains of the deceased, um, ex, for example, American footballers. Now, if they are able to diagnose it whilst people are still alive, whilst people are still playing, then you know we might see players either uh, retiring early or players who you know, start out wanting to play the game and then decide not to because it's a health risk. So. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, uh, we might even see. I mean, Roy Keane coming up with uh, some fairly controversial remarks about this, and people who don't want to take any risk go and play chess. Yeah, I mean, the thing that worries me. I mean, I've I've got two boys in the academy system. As you know, they're what seven and ten, mm. and 
I do worry that, that that they have to head a ball. I mean, I I would same as you know as a as a boy who's completely as a, as a man who's ruined from from all my limbs from having scrummaged in rugby as a boy. You know, I think those things need to be taken out. No scrummaging in rugby and no heading in footballs for young but kids. Did you know that in the learn. states heading is actually outlawed for for the under tens? That's Good. something they brought in in twenty fifteen. And Good. yeah, absolutely. Anyone who's sat and watched kids play, yeah. School no, football or whatever, you, you do worry about they're it. They're playing on virtually full-size pitches and you do get some big kids who can lump a ball forward and if a boy's at the back, he will take it full in the head and because and, 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 he's, you know, he's brave and he's, and he's competitive and he wants to... And he will head a football that's come 35 yards and it's a hell of, a, a hell of an impact on a young, young growing brain. I, I think that the FA need to look at it. Mm. The movement has been glacial on this issue. Well, as in so many things in football in regulation <laughs> in this country. <laughs> but... The, the kind of fundamental problem is that unless everyone dons headgear, you either outlaw heading the ball or you don't. But headgear's irrelevant anyway. That doesn't change anything. I mean, okay. You know, so boxing, you either ban heading or, or you don't. Could you ever see a world yeah. in which the FA would or FIFA would step in and say... I think for young kids, I think for, you know, for under 15s, mm. why, why do it? Why do it? People talk about how the ball these days um, is you know, it's lighter and therefore there's, what they fail to understand is that that ball moves just as quickly and force is about mass and velocity. So if the mass reduce, reduces but the velocity grows, this is, this is physics, you're still getting the same, you know, that they're cancelling each other out. Mm. So, you know, the ball might not be so quite so heavy but it's going a heck of a, a, a sight faster when it gets whipped in from a corner these days. So, you know, there are people who... Who are putting themselves at danger? I, I, I'm not worried about Ronaldo. I'm worried about my young kids, though. Mm. Reducing it or even banning it in youth football does seem like one potential uh, solution or yeah. one measure. What impact that would have then on the way people play once they become adults? Spanish football, would it? Because they just play it on the floor. All <laughs> oh, the that's time. true. Mm. They're, they're, they've been ahead of the game. Do you know who I worry about? Or Foca? Do you remember him? Sorry, I wasn't swearing. That's the oh, what Curlon? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the, the seal. seal. Yeah, yeah. whose whose party trick until it was kicked out of him. I imagine it was was basically to dribble the ball upfield using only his head. Yeah, and then it wasn't his head that was at risk. It was <laughs> yes. it was defenders who then just kick him in the chest to stop him. So yeah. Yeah, amazing no one ever thought that before. All right, well, we're having a chuckle, but that's a really serious issue. And uh, frankly, there doesn't seem to be a, a, an easy solution. What the Americans have done, though, I completely agree with you, Matt, mm. is something that I think should be should be considered. All right, let's have a little break, eh? And then we'll talk, uh, then we'll talk about some people who are having a miserable time, the Dutch. Here's a message from Kaiser Soze who says, regarding Reading with Van Gaal, a distant memory, De Boer banished, Koeman struggling and Stam failing, all under the, inverted commas, Dutch system, do we think that that whole approach is now unfit for purpose? Well, it's interesting that this comes at a time, this question, when Netherlands are facing a very real danger of missing out on yet another international tournament. Uh, if they fail to at least match the Swedish result on Saturday, they're playing Luxembourg, Netherlands playing Belarus, and then they're at home to Sweden. It's, it's huge. Joining us on the line to discuss what's going on with Dutch football is, I'm delighted to say, Simon Cooper. Hello, Simon. Hi, how are you doing? I'm very well. You're famous for your, for your, your thoughts on, on, on Dutch football, and you've celebrated some of its greatest moments. Right now, it does appear to be going through a kind of systemic crisis from the clubs faring badly in Europe to the managers uh, to the national side. What, what, what do you think the, the reason is for this? 
it is a systemic crisis, and it's because the Dutch forgot how to play football. I mean, the only advantage Holland had as a small country was that it was the most intelligent football country for a long time. You know, from the 70s, they, they kind of invented modern football, this fast-passing, constantly moving game. And then they just stopped thinking. And Dutch football became a lot of passing sideways, didn't keep up with advances in fitness, and um, didn't kind of go with the defensive pressing that the Spanish and the Germans had. And so it became sort of lazy and backward. Old boys network. You know, everyone in Dutch football, all these people you mentioned, um, Fajal and De Boer, they've all known each other. Fajal used to drive from De Boer to Ajax training sessions when De Boer was a teenager. So all these people have known each other forever. They keep giving each other jobs. There's very little foreign influence on the thinking. And so, you know, the best Dutch football is now played by Germany. The absence from the, 90, sorry, from the 2016 European Championship, some people at the time were saying, well, at least this will allow a reboot, if you will, a, a chance to go back to basics and, and rethink where we've gone wrong. But that doesn't seem to have happened. Have you seen any kind of change? Uh, zero, no. I mean, Otto Kat, who is age 70, Holland's manager for the third time, suggests that his replacement should be Gullitz because Gullitz is supposedly a great ambassador for Dutch football, meaning that foreigners want to shake his hand. But as we know, he's never shown any particular genius as a football manager. But it's quite possible he'll be the next Holland manager. So now it's just all boys giving each other jobs. I mean, the one bright light was was Peter Bos, who was the Ajax manager last season, who has managed abroad and um, whose thoughts kind of about how to modernise Dutch football and has created this very kind of fast, high-pressing German game with very fit players. And that took Ajax to the Euro- Europa League final last year, really playing wonderful football by their standards with a team age, average age about 21. And, um, of course, you know, he upset the old boys at Ajax and uh, he got a better offer from Dortmund. There's no thought that, you know, someone that he, I can't think of anyone else like him, should be made Holland manager. More's the pity. I mean, Jorge Sampaiolo, the, the Argentine, was keen to become Holland manager last year. But the Dutch weren't interested, which is baffling to me because, you know, if you talk about somebody who's modernised Dutch football, it's him. Somebody who, who obviously booted Dutch football in the first place was, of course, Johan Cruyff. And uh, he, he took that template over to Barcelona and, you know, the legacy of, of their success in more recent years is a lot of it down to him. A lot of people are going to perhaps conflate his death with this. Is there is there anything in it at all? I think Krauf was actually holding Holland back the last 15, 20 years or so because, I mean, his philosophy is back to the past. You know, everything that happened in the 70s was was right and that's how football should still be played. You should still have a right footer on the right wing, you know, boots on the touchline, left footer on the left wing. Uh, you don't need fitness. That's just a modern fallacy. And um, all jobs should be given to ex-Dutch footballers, all coaching jobs. So I think that Krauf became... Um, you know, the kind of godfather of the degeneration of Dutch football, just as he himself had created it. I mean, you can't play the football of the 70s in 2017. It just doesn't work anymore. It's back to the past for the, the national side at, at the moment. Uh, with Well, Robin van Persie came back for the last round of games. He's out injured, so is Snyder. Uh, Ryan Barbel is back in the squad uh, alongside Vincent Janssen. Uh, Simon, what's your impression? Do you think the Netherlands are going to do what they need to do? Are they, are they going to make it at least to a playoff? Uh, almost no chance. I think Sweden's goal difference is better than ours to the point that we'd have to beat Sweden about 3-0 and match their results in the other game, which um, is extremely unlikely to happen. So, um, no, frankly, I think the chance is almost zero. Wow. And in club terms, or in just in general? It's a disaster. I, 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 I get this Dutch football magazine. I've been getting it for 40 years. And the last few weeks, I just haven't been able to bring myself even to open it because it's just too sad and depressing. 
and I now dread the European games because when Dutch teams get tonked, you know, the national team or the clubs, and I look forward to the the weekend when Dutch teams get to play each other, so it's less embarrassing. It, it, it's just awful. It's just an awful subject now. Mm. But you've been you've been down on football for a little while, Simon. Well, I'm not the world's biggest football fan anymore, I have to admit, but I do still have a sentimental attachment to Dutch football. And I was at the Ajax Lyon game in April in Amsterdam, and I, I was doing my nut. I was, it was the best evening I've had in football in about 20 years. And there were a lot of old fat blokes like me in the Amsterdam arena just cheering their heads off. You know, we couldn't believe it. We hadn't seen Ajax play this well since the 90s. And um, suddenly I felt, hey, I've become a football fan again. But um, the, the feeling is receding, I have to admit. It, is there any way that they're going to start thinking again, the Dutch, to kind of borrow your expression from earlier, with whether through Peter Bosch, who's having such success in the Bundesliga, or, or, or indeed, any, is, is there anyone out there who, who you think can represent a new dawn? If you look at Germany, they said around 2004, we need people who are not the old boys. We need people who didn't play 100 internationals. Uh, we need people with upsetting different thinking like Jurgen Klinsmann, although he did play 100 internationals. We're going to find new people. We're going to ask foreigners what they think. And I don't see any of that tendency at all in Holland. No, the tendency is to think who was a good player in the past, you know, Hullet, Frank de Boer, whoever. OK, well, let's make him an inspirational manager. Well, there's Simon Cooper there. Delightful to have him on. Wow, yeah. And if you if, if you like that kind of thing, there's some great books you can read, aren't there, Matt? Absolutely. He was uh, an absolute hero of mine uh, in football writing when I was a, a young man, still at university. His book, uh, which had an orange cover, um, Football Against the Enemy, was yeah. just absolutely seminal. Fantastic Great book. book. Very brave. Lose. That's another good book. one. Very courageous book. Oh, really? Yeah. Well, he went and visited the, the Ukrainian mafia in that book and uh, yeah, yeah. talked to them about their football. Incredible. He also did a good book a couple of years ago called The Football Men, which was mm. just bite-sized five-page interviews with every big player of the last 10 years, and that was fantastic as well. Mm. Brilliant. All right. Simon Cooper. Tweet us at The Totally Football Show. Find us on Facebook and check us out at thetotallyfootballshow.com. Matt, here's a question from me. Is that fire all burnt out at FIFA? The Congress, when they went and they, the FBI came in and they rested and looked like it might be a total collapse of world football's governing body, and it now seems almost as if... It's almost as if none of that ever happened, although clearly Jenny Infantino's there in, in place of Sepp Blatter. What's happened there, in a nutshell? Uh, yeah, I, I mean, I think you're quite right. These are the dying embers of it. I think that they've they've put lots of people away. Lots of people signed signed away that, that you know that their their confessions. Some people have died. Uh, Jack Warner continues to be uh, under an extradition uh, request from the United States that he's continuing to resist. But broadly speaking, the United States have have achieved what they wanted to do. They what they, was that? They've managed to put away a lot of people who were embezzling football's funds. They've got a very strong dialogue with the uh, the, the top man at, at FIFA. There's a tremendous amount of influence from the United States towards Johnny uh, Infantino. I think that he recognises his political, uh, not obligations, but polit- political... Uh, that they're putting some butter on his bread yeah potentially i think yeah i think that he's you know he's doing he's 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 in position because have because they got a world this. cup coming up 
Yeah, well, look, they, they will be bidding, I expect, for the 2026 World Cup. And I would be very surprised if there's anybody strong enough to, to get there. I think that the, the, there will be some very interesting tectonic plates as to who gets 2026 and who gets 2030 between China and the USA. Mm, interesting. I love international breaks, actually, because it gives us a chance to talk about other topics. Topics perhaps dear to the hearts of listeners. Here's Mike at Mike Handro says, should the club season run from September to April with all international breaks thus move to May, June or the start of July in one block, no more international breaks? When would we hear your questions then, Mike? What, would you, what, <laughs> what, what do you think about? What do you think? We could have a special pod on in, in, in May. Yeah. What do you think? No, I'm not too keen on that. And I think, Why not? Well, that would, that would make qualification quite difficult. I mean... How would that tie in, for example, with the new Nations League thing, which is going to happen and really soon, and I really need to find out what it is? Uh, do you want the full explainer now? Uh, yeah. Okay. I'm not convinced that you do, but I'm going to give it to you. All right, let's put some pacey music underneath you, and you can do it in bullet points. Okay, so it's a really big change to how international football is going to work. You're going to have the same number of match days, but instead of having so many friendlies, you're going to have basically a new tournament called the UEFA Nations League. Hmm. And that means that 55 sides in UEFA are going to be split into four different tiers. Divisions? Yeah, pretty much. But then within those divisions, you're going to have groups of three or four towards the bottom, but three at the top. And they will play each other home and away in September, October, November next year. So say England have Portugal and Croatia, there'll be a three-team group. They play each other twice, and then you'll have a league table, first, second, third... All the teams that finish third in those groups will be relegated to the second tier Mm. and you have this movement up and down the divisions. So promotion and relegation within international football, which is a new thing in Europe. Well, anywhere, actually. Um, And then the four teams who win those top groups will then go through to semi-finals and finals, which will take place in June 2019. And whoever wins that wins the UEFA Nations League. And how does that relate to the qualifying for the next European Championship? Does well, it this also is, give you the qualifiers? Uh, no, this is where it gets slightly more complex, oh. I'm afraid, because you probably worked out what I said there, but then you still have to do the qualifiers. So the qualifiers initially will be roughly same uh, system. Ten groups, two go, uh, two go through from each group, and you get 20 teams. It's a 24-team tournament. So how do you get those last four teams? You then go back to the UEFA Nations League, which has already been completed, and the four teams from each tier or each yeah. division okay. that haven't qualified through the qualification then play off for the final spot. So the interesting thing there is even the bottom tier, which is full of your Luxembourg's Liechtensteins, will produce one team that probably for the first time in their history goes through to the uh, you know mad cross-Europe Euro 2020. Great use of your Luxembourgs and your Lichtensteins, Matt. But some of the criticism of this is that there could this could lead to some gaming of the system. Also, and if team... because it's absurd. Yes, yes. <laughs> but worse than that, it's, it, it, as, as you know, we all ought to be concerned about the integrity of our game. Oh, yeah. And if you get to towards the fag end of a, sea, of, a, of a campaign and you think, right, OK, well, we've got no chance of qualifying th- for the World Cup in normal way, so let's get ourselves down in there with the Andorras and the Faroe Isles uh, if you're one of those third third division teams, and Netherlands, as, yeah. the, as we may yet see, hmm. you know, they may see this as a route into the well, World Cup, which would be a real problem. Tank, tank their way into that. Yeah, yeah I, think, I think that is a real problem, even from just the second to the third tier as well. It's going to be such a yeah. difference in quality of those teams. Uh, have I not understood well, or are there going to be way more qualifying match or way more internationals? No, no, there'll be the same number of international matches, but significantly fewer friendlies. 
So it's basically a, an opportunity to use those match days for competitive games, really. The purpose of it is that you get Germany playing Spain, Italy and others, which is more commercial than when they are... I mean, look at the empty seats that England have. They're closing off entire tiers of Wembley because they have to play rubbish teams. So if they're able to, to, to play, you know, to be guaranteed to have this seeded system where they, they, they're always not really going to fear relegation and still mm. be playing those top sides, mm. then that is more commercial for the top sides. All right, then. Hey, let's change topic radically uh, with James Gulk, uh, who says, Hey, nice to meet you at the Maidenhead match in August. Will you and the gang be attending any games this non-league day? Andy Lloyd-Williams mentions that pod favourites Sutton and Maidenhead are both playing at home. Anyone going down to a non-league game this weekend? Uh, yes, I'll be at Harrow Borough against Kingstonian. Oh, right. Um, but that's not the game I'd recommend if you're in London. Mm-hmm. If you are in London, uh, in the ninth tier, is Hackney Wick against Clapton FC. Why are you not oh, going to that one? Derby, isn't it? That is a local derby. Well, this is very exciting, James, because they're the two teams that sh- uh, share the old spotted dog ground, which is the oldest football ground in London. And that uh, interesting thing is Clapton FC, you may or may not know, have very famous ultras who kind of turn up with flares and banners and sing songs like the about... the Pauli of non-league football. Pretty much. Country, and, and they sing songs about uh, Palestine and stuff like that, which is very... very uh, it's dying. Uh, Palestine. dying. <laughs> Palestine. Oh, Palestine. <laughs> I thought it was like a Brighton scenario. Sorry, right. <laughs> I'm so sorry. They sing songs about Palestine. But the interesting thing here is the Clapton fans yes. um, have been boycotting their home games because there's a dispute with the owners about the future of the ground. Oh. But because this is technically a Hackney Wick home game and ah. their ground share, rather than standing in a back alley and shouting their uh, chants you know, over the fence, they're mm. going to be, you know, going into their ground for the first time this season, which is very exciting. Brilliant. That does sound extraordinary. Why are you not going to that one, Michael? Uh, well, because I'm a, a kind of part-time Kingstonian fan, so I'm going to support them All instead. Right, nice. But this is, uh, this is a, it could be quite a, a spectacle, I think. I'm I'm going to uh, something which is, you can't really call it non-league, but it's got a lot of non-league players playing alongside the likes of Stephen Gerrard and others. Uh, right. I'm going to the, uh, to the Wembley Cup at Wembley this weekend. What's that, Matt? It, it is a very much a 21st century phenomenon. This is uh, all those boys on, on, on YouTube who, uh, who talk into microphones uh, for a living from their bedrooms um, have come up with this great idea, a guy called Spencer uh, from Spencer FC on YouTube. He's come up with oh, this right, fantastic yeah, yeah. idea of, of, of playing all the YouTubers with all of their followings and it's, you know, it aggregates all of the, the viewers and at the same time bringing in some legends. So they've had Martin Keown in the past as a manager and Stuart Pearce as well uh, and they play at Wembley. And my boys are absolutely made up about the fact they're going. I'm obviously not going on my own. I'm going to take my two boys who are mad for it. Oh. Forgive my ignorance. Who are these people? These YouTube people? <laughs> they're, 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 <laughs> Sorry, I'm not being rude, but like, yeah, well, they're, they're, they're far more famous than all of us, bar James. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, they no, have no. no but what, what do the people? Got, they're massive. You know, they are enormous. Are, they, uh, so what are, they, are they gamers? No. Yes. Oh. Yes, they're gamers. But but the best of them, like Chris MD and Spencer, they they yeah. they actually they do have a bit of bit about them in terms of football and they do football challenges that, that then they, okay, right, they, yeah. they parlay into how they play FIFA. It is actually quite quite good content. Yeah. No, sorry, I've not been dismissive. I just no, don't know how they... Uh, yeah. You're showing you know. your age, Michael. I, well, I, I yeah. played in a game with Spencer over the summer, actually. Did you? Yeah. What was he like? It was, yeah, it was all right. His brother was quite good, actually. Mm. Yeah. yeah he's, he's a nice lad. He's yeah. a genuinely nice lad. I mean, I, I, I've met him a few, yeah, a few times. There you go. Really nice lad. 
Uh, Terry Vegetables, thoughts on the Ancelotti to Arsenal rumours for the end of the season. How about that one? What do you think, James? He was, I think, yeah, rather than calling him Ancelbroccoli, which he might have been, you know, vegetables and all that. I just thought that was lending itself to some kind of broccoli Yeah, I don't pun. think he likes veg, Carlo, does he? He's a more of a yeah, meat man. He's yeah. a pretty open to all kinds of culinary experiences. Yeah. But this this notion that he might join Arsenal at the end of the season, where does that come from? Has anyone heard this before El Tell Vegetables come Well, he, suppose the Ancelotti would be very keen on the Arsenal job and it would oh, really? be, it'd be a very Arsenal appointment in the sense that I think he's kind of a Wenger figure. He's not, a, as we've heard at Bayern, he's not a real kind of in-depth micromanaging the tactics kind of thing. He's a very kind of hands-off, let the players express themselves. But uh, it certainly won't be at the end of the season because Wenger has a two-year contract. And as we know, uh, Wenger does not uh, does not break contracts. Right. Uh, Bayern and the... No, I'm not so sure about that. Things oh, I'm well, hearing on, is that, that, that perhaps it won't last as long as uh, the two years. That's a room, very much a rumour. Uh, the rumour uh, is... The... Uncorroborated. But that the Wenger may not be there at the end of the uh, 2019 season. Wow, that's mm. that, that's going to be... A novel experience to go through the, the season with questions yes. over whether Wenger's going to be there next. He won't. He, he, won't be there. he won't be there at the end of the night, 2019. Yeah. Oh, really? Yeah, it would be novel, wouldn't it? That, that there would be a no no Wenger in Arsenal. I mean, goodness <laughs> me! You know, the people, no, was... many people listening to this will never have known an Arsenal football uh-huh. club without. Him. Is this anything to do with the power struggle between Usmanov and, and Krunki? Uh, no, no. It's just that that there is some suggestion that that this was uh, something that they were going to give him two years in order mm. that 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 it would sort of get the focus away from from his departure towards the end of the season. And you know, when you give somebody a finite amount of time, mm. you look at the the way that results were for, for for Sir Alex Ferguson when he announced his retirement the first time around, when Gordon Strachan did. You know, teams tend to to fall off a cliff. So so there would be some proper sporting rationale to that uh, but I don't see Carlo doing it unless he's got Paul Clement behind him it does look like uh, that things things don't go too yeah. well I think okay. the, Carlo would love it though the fl- yeah and I think he's he's actually gone on the record as saying in the past that it's a job that he would like to do um, I think yeah, come the summer say if they don't make the, the World Cup they're, pro- they're going to have to go through a playoff say if they flop at the World Cup and that opportunity comes up you'd expect Carlo to throw his hat in the ring there as well some people asking about the potentially soon-to-be-vacant position at Milan. As, as well, we'll touch on that a little bit later on. Uh, Carlo's former club, Bayern Munich, meanwhile, resolving their interim issues by reappointing Jupp Heynckes, who was last there winning the treble, is now 70 and had sworn he... 72, yeah. sorry. I suppose the irony here is that the last manager of Bayern to be sacked before December was Jupp Heynckes <laughs> back in 1991. That's great knowledge. Yeah. Right, this is his fourth spell at the German champions, so no hard feelings, clearly. Uh, Hugh Honey, is Marcus Rashford going to play out wide for his entire career with people <laughs> saying, I see him through the middle eventually? Yeah, well, I, I mean, almost every player now that breaks through does prefer playing in the middle. You don't have those classic touchline hugging wingers anymore. So you do have to find compromises, and you have a player like Theo Walcott, you know, a similar thing was said about him. Oxlade-Chamberlain is now trying to convince himself he's a central player when he's not, he's a wide player. Um, I think Rashford's a little bit different because he is such a clinical finisher. Um, The problem, I guess, is Lukaku at Manchester United, so he might have to, um, you know, take his chances out wide. But uh, I I think he is different from Walcott and Oxlade-Chamberlain in the sense that he is suited to playing through the middle. Mm. But if you were playing two up front, could he not complement those players? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, and there'll be times when when those other players are, are injured and he'll get his chance. But, Here, uh, here's a question: with with the vogue four three at the back, why are we not seeing more three five two for England? Full stop. 
you know, it's, everybody's 3-4-3 three, three at the moment. They're not playing with two four players. Yeah, well, I mean, Conte did it against Atletico and it was quite successful. But then, you know, obviously he had, um, he had problems at the weekend with City. I think that City game was interesting because it showed that Chelsea were really outnumbered down the flanks. And, and that is a weakness, I think, for the three five two. If your wing-backs are pinned back, you just can't cover the space on the flanks. So um, it'll be interesting to see how Chelsea do it because Conte's clearly been kind of... Um, you know, he's had three five two in reserve, hasn't he? He used it a little bit last season. Um, but I think three four three does offer you more balance. Of course, Michael, you've seen tactical vogues come and go in the Premier League. You've even written a book about it, detailing those changes season by season. Yeah. What's it called again? It's called The Mixer. All right. And it's Have you finished yours now. yet? I haven't actually. No, you got Things, <laughs> I've, been, I've been really busy. But I am reading it. Um anyway. Oh listen, two more quick questions and then we'll get on to business. Uh, Madassa Pervez I hope I haven't said something rude there do you see Harry Kane in Madrid in the next three years I've been saying it for three years well then you've been wrong because he hasn't gone (laughs) (laughs) that one day he will be at Real Madrid oh well that's yeah alright I mean I I, I genuinely think that that, that's that's written in the stars I mean he is just such a wonderful finisher Mm. um I mean, I know that Benzema's been given a longer deal, but I think that he's the natural successor to him. And they do need to bring in somebody up top. Uh, yeah. well, and, and, and there is this fast loop that uh, you know Elon Musk has been building. You know, he, he should just be looking at the one that goes between Real Madrid and Tottenham Hotspur. Yeah, that's uh, true. The, the auto Induction loop, trouble. Yeah. Uh, possibly tweet of the week. This is from Brian Crawley. He says, last weekend, Augsburg left-back Phillips Max played against Dortmund winger Max Philipp. Is this some kind of record? I do like that. And one more. Father Forber, who's your favourite rubbish player? I love Joe and Boyata at Man City. Have you got a favourite rubbish player? Well, yeah, because he wasn't really rubbish. He was just rubbish in England, which is Thomas Brolin. um, I remember Brolin turning up at Leeds and being, you know, very overweight. I think, what, it was quarter of a quarter of a million a, a game he, oh. he got paid we're going to say quarter so of a Volvo <laughs> <laughs> right. but there was the time he played he, kept, he played Leeds for Palace and um, yeah he uh, Berlin was at Palace yeah briefly mm. and he, he with L- Attilio Lombardi yeah he went up for a, a challenge and got kind of elbowed and he started bleeding <laughs> and then he then he went off for six minutes and his team was down to ten men Leeds scored he comes back on he has his like head bandaged up and then I think he, I mean he must have been concussed because again the ball kind of gets fired in. It hits him in the head, knocks his bandage off. They then put like a little bit of a plaster on it, and it was just yeah a nightmare. Also, I remember the goal he scored against Leeds, which was do you remember the one that Chicharito scored where he fell over and it hit his face and went in? Brolin did more or less the same wow. against Chef Wednesday. So mm. you got a favourite rubbish player? I really liked a player called Geisga Tukero, who played up front for Athletic Bilbao about four or five years ago. He just had no coordination and no technical skill, but he ran really, really hard and really fast and scored so many goals just by defenders kind of being surprised he was still there. And he also wore number two and played up front, which just summed up the fact <laughs> he was so unnatural for that position. <laughs> like Wilfred Bonney. Huh? Um, the, uh, for me... Uh, Christopher Ray probably because that was back in the day when you could win a title despite having really rubbish players on the bench. I mean, he wasn't good enough, and uh, he was the understudy to to Anelka, and still he won won a double. Oh, yeah. um, and Nelson re- Vivas. He retired yeah. early to um, to start a soul band, I think, didn't he? Wow, is that right? Yeah, he was, has he been uh, into jazz FM? Oh, I d- I'm not sure. Get him in. Get him in. Step mm. on. Soul band. Mm. Right. Arsenal players. Yeah, there's a lot of yeah, there's a lot of bad Arsenal players that but I didn't like as many of them as, as Christopher Wright. I understand, Matt. Alright, we'll take another break and then some more serious business. 
Listeners, like a stat, have a go on this one. 81% of men who try the Cornerstone razor don't go back to their old one. I know. Find out more and get £10 off your first order and free delivery too at cornerstone.co.uk slash totally. Hey, hope you're enjoying Are you still there, listener? Yep. Enjoying it so far? Me too. Uh, next up, do, do you want to just discuss one or two more of the things that are going on worldwide? Because I mentioned at the top the fact that all these nations that might miss out some interesting situations. So Africa, they don't have players uh, playoffs in, in uh, CAF. You probably knew that, Michael. It's just the, the group winners go through. And currently, although this will be finalised in November, that's set to be Nigeria, Tunisia, Ivory Coast and Burkina Faso. Wow. Burkina Faso could be knocking South Africa out. Gosh. Going to be playing them in this set of games, actually. Central America, Mexico already through. And then you're going to have another two from Costa Rica almost through. And Panama, USA or Honduras. USA are playing Panama this Saturday. Yeah. USA are fourth spot at the moment, which I think they would mean they would play the winner of Syria versus Australia. A lot of comments about that game. Whether we should be rooting for the Syrians or not, you know, geopolitically speaking and that. But it is a remarkable achievement. A, a, a side that comes from a country in the middle of a six-year war, they have no money because of sanctions. They have to play all of their home matches in... Do you know where they play the home matches? Kuala Malaysia. Yeah, Malaysia. That's 9,000 miles of round trip mm. for you. Uh, anyway, they haven't that, lost there. Never hmm? lost there. Have they not? Yeah. How many games have they played? Six there? games. Wow. And, and there's a seventh one coming up this evening against... Australia, the first of that, that two-legged playoff, and they've come through in a well. They come third in a group that's that's you know, toughish. You know, they've beaten China, which they're no mugs. Uzbekistan have had a reasonable record. China, so locally. no mugs. <laughs> <laughs> um, so uh, yeah, uh, so yeah, they should be good in the cup. <laughs> Yeah. Anyway, uh, in South America, don't forget, as Jack Lang was explaining Thursday night, it's Argentina-Peru, and I know you're all fired up about that one, particularly because early reports are that Argentina are going to have Papu Gomez lining up in a three behind uh, Benedetto, who I think is the the local lad that Jack was telling us yeah. about. Uh, so it'd be Papu Gomez, Messi in the middle, and Di Maria on the other side. That's a bit tasty, isn't it? Yeah, but um, Sam Pauli's saying what... Uh what Matt was saying, that it just doesn't have time to work on tactics there, oh. which for you know a very highly tactical manager like him, you know, we've got all these great players, need more time to actually get them to, to work together coherently. It just doesn't have the time. Right. Very shortly, Matt, we'll be talking to you about serious business, Premier League TV rights and that. First, though, James, Italy had some top questions. Can Napoli be consistent enough to win Serie A this year? I think so. I mean, going back to last season, they're unbeaten in 19 games. The second half of last year, they had the best record in the league and they've picked up exactly where they left off, now, partly because they didn't change the team at all. The, the social media is awash right now, uh -huh. James, with people talking up Napoli. Mm -hmm. um, for many people, their win against Calgary last weekend, what was it, 3-0, mm. was an apotheosis of sadismo, the kind of fast-paced, one-two-touch football that, that Maurizio Sarri likes his, his team's to play. It wasn't long ago, though, that we also saw them beaten by Shakhtar Donetsk, exposing a lot of the fragilities that never seems that far away for me with, with the partner pay. What do you think? Have we? What is Sadismo from the uninitiated? Well, is this the best team to be watching in Europe? And I'd be interested in your thoughts as well, Michael, because I know you like to dabble. Mm -hmm. 
Sadismo is, I would say, the closest thing you'd get to seeing Arrigo Sacchi's kind of football in 2017. By which you mean? By which I mean kind of um, high-pressing, um, wonderful, just coordinated orchestral football. Um, and, you know, we've seen this Napoli side um, play to a standard where even Pep Guardiola says, yeah, in terms of a team to watch, they're one of the three best teams in Europe at the moment, which really sets up that game against Man City after the international fortnight as being one of the games to watch in, in, in 2017-18. Um, but yeah, as you mentioned, this game against Cagliari was, okay, you can take issue with the opponent, but in terms of a technically accomplished performance, it was almost perfect in that they had what, four players who had more than 100 touches, they had a pass completion rate of, what, 94.7%. Some of the goals they scored were, were beautiful um, in, in much the same way that... Um, you know, we've praised some of the, the football that Guardiola's teams have played. Um, so, yeah, I think this is their year. And to go back to that Shakhtar performance, I think um, you know what was taken from that was that this is a team that I think believe it's their year in Italy and will prioritise Italy and winning the, the title for the first time in 28 years rather than um, look to kind of make inroads and, and go deep in the Champions League this year. I still think that's an important competition for them, obviously, because it's you know, an international window on them. Um, but you know, I think for them and for that city, that community, um, yeah, ending that uh, wait for a, for a league title, which yeah, they've, they've had to wait since the days of Maradona 4, would be massive. Currently on a 12-game winning streak in the league. Michael, what, what are your thoughts on, on Napoli and Sadi? Yeah, I'm, I'm a huge fan. I mean, not since Guardiola's Barcelona have I really kind of made time to make sure I watch their game almost every weekend. I think they're fantastic. The interesting thing about them is the way they pass the ball because they pass the ball so quickly in deep positions but don't actually go forward that quickly, if that makes sense, until the opponents come to press them. And then they just, you know, cut through them really quickly. And it's just, it must be so difficult to play against because it's just happening so quickly you don't know whether to come or go and I really like the the way the front three works um Insigne cutting inside Callejon's always going around the outside he seems to score the same goal every week going past the fullback and uh, and Mertens who's kind of um just the right balance between a you know a silky link-up player but also has become out of nowhere really a prolific goal scorer I mean, so how come Shakhtar beat them then but they rotated uh, the team yeah, they, of course, Mertens yeah. was left out of the yeah. starting lineup, and yeah. Mertens comes on, wins a penalty, and they they could have got back into that game. And we also did see that um, Shakhtar in what that first half against City, a pretty handy side. So um, yeah, I think it's just one of those games where you have to get your approach right. You can't take it lightly. And I think Napoli weirdly had their minds on on the league at the weekend and then the midweek round because they were due to play Lazio, which was a big game for them. But still. Huge matches coming up, by the way, when Serie A returns, because Napoli will be... Is it Napoli-Roma? It's at, at San Paolo or in the Stadio Olimpico? Na- October will be a big test for Napoli's uh, title credentials because they play they play Roma, they play Inter, and they play, obviously, City back-to-back. Right. So it will be a testing time for them. Also, when Serie A returns, Juventus, who just got held by Atalanta, the excellent, another of the really terrific sides right now in Italian football, uh, will be uh, visiting... I think they're... At, no, they're hosting Lazio... And uh, there's also the Milan derby on that return from international football. Uh, Ross says, can AC Milan win the Europa League? Addy Clark says, if Montella, <laughs> the Milan manager, gets the boot and they install Ancelotti, can you see them competing this year? How much pr- pressure, realistically, is Montella under and why? Well, I think he's under a lot of pressure to deliver purely because they spent so much money. Um, they spent £230 million, they bought an entire new team, um, 11 new players. And... Uh, 
I think the stakes are very high just because of the way that that takeover was structured um, in that um, there were delays after delays after delays to get it done, which I think meant the the guy who's fronting that takeover lost a lot of face, lost a lot of credibility in order to get it done. He had to lean on a on a hedge fund in in, in the UK, Elliot, um, with you know, very high interest rates, and knows already story last week. Uh, he's seeking uh, seeking new investors, and um, he also pushed that takeover through without the approval of the Chinese government. Who've obviously tried to clamp down on people getting their money out and um, investing in frivolous things like football. Um, but um, so yeah, I mean, I think Milan this season have won ten or thirteen games, which isn't all that bad. They've been very good in the Europa League, and you can say they've played rubbish opponents. Uh, it might come down this season for them that they do what Manchester United did last year and think actually maybe the league's getting away from us, we'll focus on this. Um, but I think what's not shown Montella in a, in a particularly good light is that they've lost every big game they've played in the league against teams that they need to be beating in order to get back into the Champions League. But I have some sympathy for him, you know, in, in that, yeah, it's very, there's no continuity with last year in that it is a completely new team and he, is, he, has, he does feel pressure to play players who might not be ready yet. Um, so they're going to have to come together very quickly. And as I say, that, that derby takes on an altogether different significance because it is a Chinese Milan against a Chinese Inter. And there will be kind of a point of pride there. You know, I don't think, um, mm-hmm. yeah, if you were to lose that, it wouldn't, you know, again, Lee Yong Hong's kind of motives for getting involved. Yeah, he might be a bit embarrassed if they were to lose in that game. Not so much a needle match, that one, as a noodle match. <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> It's gone to pot there. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Oh my (laughs) word. Brilliant. Thanks, James. Matt Scott, you're up next. All right, Matt. Uh, At the top of the the podcast, you were teasing us with hints about potential cracks within the global dominance that is the Premier League. Big contracts about to be sorted out this Christmas. They're going to do the new TV deal. And I think most clubs would expect another leap forwards in terms of the money. Is the international deal being sorted out this Christmas as well, or is that on a yeah. different... That is. The, the invitation to tender goes out. They've already signed one or two deals, China and USA most notably. And the Chinese deal is ten times bigger than, than it was under the previous right side. Ten times. Ten times. So, you know, that's a, that's a, a very... Um, it's a, it's, you know, it's, a, it's a big deal what's what, what's going to come out. You, you do see there being still more rights inflation. Ed Woodward was very confident that uh, uh, he being the executive vice chairman of Manchester United uh, in a recent conference call, very confident that there would be a bid from the tech giants. You know, the, Facebook, and he Amazon, Apple. Yeah. Amazon, Apple. Yeah. But that's something that's been rumoured before and hasn't materialised. And it's obviously within the club's interest to suggest to the likes of Sky and BT that they better up their offers because... Big money's waiting to come in. Broadly speaking, then, between the potential increases, and it looks like there will be significant increases again in, in revenue for the, the Premier League, and this potential schism within the Premier League itself over how to split up the international rights, do you see the future looking rosy or otherwise for the Premier League? It's, it's an interesting time because what you have is a naturally conservative constitution which requires 14 clubs to agree things and it, at the moment there are 
nine in favour. In favour of changing expect. the split. Yeah, in terms of the international deal. So, uh, And on top of that, Leicester, Everton and West Ham would all be in favour of, of a change. And all of those really are the ones that you would look at and think they're probably the ones who will not go down. Yeah. Um, Leicester's current league position notwithstanding. Um it's going to be very difficult for any of them to get a constituency of uh, that's any bigger and another five clubs to come on board now what does that mean well the top you know the top earning clubs in this country who are obviously uh, arsenal manchester united chelsea liverpool manchester city and tottenham they all will think that they should be getting a bigger pie generally speaking bigger slice of the pie um, because they are the ones who, as Ian Eyre said two or three years ago, uh, they are the ones who are generating the interest in, in China. How many people in Singapore are signing up to watch Bolton Wanderers, he said. Right. But equally, what people worldwide are supposedly tuning in for is a league where any side can beat any no, side. I'm not sure that's true. I think that a lot of a lot of them are very keen on seeing Manchester United win. I don't think it's been helpful to to the Premier League as a brand. The, the biggest club in this country has been so poor for so long. But doesn't the, doesn't the fact that they're earning so much from international rights and so much more? I don't know what the figures are now, but previously, what the Premier League earned from just the rights in Singapore was as much as the Bundesliga made in the entire world. Just to give you an idea of the kind of scales we're talking about. But isn't that evidence the fact that this is exactly the setup the way it is is exactly what international audiences want yeah but how much of that is as i say the, down to the legacy of success in the early you know the early part of the 21st century and and you know the fact that at a time when people were pivoting towards football in europe the english clubs were doing so well was definitely of of legacy benefit to them in in the following seasons the following years i think that if they continue to fail to compete uh, in the champions league then that will be detrimental to the income and you know the the risk that, that the other clubs may have is that that there has been talk of of shifting the champions league to the weekends uh, barcelona were very much in favor of that and one or really? two others yeah when would they begin doing that well that that that's been spoken about for five or six years. I mean, the, their blueprint, I think, is for the European showpiece games to, to take precedence over domestic football. I don't think you'd ever see a migration of, of the big clubs out of the Premier League. It would be mutual assured destruction for everybody. But what you may see is a midweek for their matches to be scheduled in midweek because we've seen the Champions League final move to a Saturday, which was seen as a, as a bit of a Trojan horse for this. Um or if not a stalking horse, then you know the, the Wednesday for for the games that are currently played in the, in those slots to be moved at, to be domestic domestic games. And if they were to do that, you can still you can see the big clubs getting even bigger revenues, bigger squads, and being able to to field second string sides as they currently do in the in the tertiary and secondary competitions of the League Cup and the FA Cup. How, how close are we well. to? The Premier League playing some of its matches abroad. Well, you know, it's interesting that the, 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 the international number is 39 million. That's what they all share between themselves. And 39 is obviously a number we've visited before <laughs> mm. uh, and in similar conversations about this. Uh, I, will they play overseas? I think, it's again, it's something that the top clubs really are very keen on. Um, getting some competitive football played in front of the eyeballs of, of, of their hinterlands overseas. Um, I don't think so, no. Okay. Matt, been great to have you on here. If if people think, oh, that's a bit saucy, I'd like a little bit more of that on, say, my Twitter feed. How would they access your brain? 
it's uh, at Matt Scott. Which, but uh, Scott spelt with a five. That's right. Yeah. Well, unfortunately, it got taken. There's a there's a lot of Matt Scotts out there. There's a there's an international Scotland rugby player. There's a NASCAR driver. The first hand transplant. So unfortunately, uh, uh, I was a long way down the list by the wow. time I got onto Twitter. There'll only ever be one Matt Scott in here. I can tell you well, that. Well, that's much. kind of you, uh, James Horncastle at. That's it. At James Horncastle. At James Horncastle. Oh, yeah, yeah he, was, um, he was quick off the mark to get right, on Twitter, yeah. wasn't he? And Michael Cox. I'm at zonal underscore marking. Right. Because someone pinched zonal marking and has, nev- <laughs> has never tweeted. It was oh, that's, um, that's Sean Dyche, wasn't it? No, it might well have been. Right. Now, it's Sean Dyche. Just going back over the oh, Twitter yeah. questions. Yes. Would Carlo be a good fit for Everton? If they don't go for Sean Dice, they're mad. Okay, the, the the question was actually about Arsenal, but somebody did write in That's about right. Carlo for Everton, yeah. and you think Sean Dice? Absolutely, I think that he would be brilliant. Palace made a huge. How soon do you think they'll need a new manager, Matt? Uh, well, interestingly, uh, it's unraveling there and uh, at Everton, and I don't think this was very far away. Southampton bit their arms off when they came in for him because they didn't really have a very high regard for Ronald Koeman, um, and it looks like the truth is now out. And uh, I don't think he'll... I'd be surprised if he's still there beyond Christmas. I would. I don't see him turning it around. All right. Matt, that's terrific. Look forward to seeing you again soon, Mr Digger. Uh, And you as well, listener. We're back on Monday when Jack Lang will be rejoining us uh, to recount what happened when Argentina hosted Peru and so much more as we round up matches that have happened over the weekend and more besides. Do get your questions in if there's something you fancy hearing us a chat about and we'll be seeing you then. Have a great weekend in the meantime. The Totally Football Show is a Muddy Knees Media production. For sales and advertising, email sales at muddykneesmedia.com.